The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. The teaching from the Satipatthana Sutta on the sense bases in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, kind of a foundation that emphasizes, in a way, looking at the relationships in various fields of our experience, various aspects of our experience. The sense base is one kind of way in to know what's going on in our experience. So in the Buddhist uh, understanding, there are six sense bases, the five usual sense bases of our physical senses, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, And then the sixth base, the sixth sense base, is the sense base of the mind. And so it's understood as a sense base in a very similar way in that there's a a kind of a receiver. We can think of the sense organs as receivers. The eye is a sensitive organ that receives sight. The ear receives sound. And the mind is a kind of... um, Um, an aspect of our experience, we could say that it's an organ, we might think of it as the brain, although the the Buddha did not speak of it that way. You know, the the base of our capacity to receive mental experience. So there is a, uh, there are mental objects in our experience and those me- some of those me- those mental objects are in a way both um, created and received by the mind and so the the sense base of the mind is a little different than our other sense bases because our eyes don't create the thing the 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 the, the light waves our ear doesn't create the sound waves but in the mind the mind creates the the processes of mind create the uh, emotions, the thoughts, the mind states, and then um, the uh, the mind is a receiver. It also receives those. And so the um, the fourth in the fourth foundation, the teaching on the six sense bases encourages us to get to know each of these sense bases as separate kind of processes. So the instructions go: one knows the eye and forms the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and taste, the the body and tangibles, and then the mind and objects of mind. So we we know those as experiences. And, And then an additional deepening of understanding that's pointed to around each of these sense bases and this is really the, the kind of the key part of the instruction, is to understand the, the, the fetter, which is a funny word for us in English. We don't usually go around using that word in our daily lives. Um, uh, the fetter that uh, is, it arises in dependence on both. And we could say that the fetter is um, craving. Uh, the, the fetter is that which ties us to the sense experience, forms of greed, aversion, and delusion. So fetter is a kind of a, 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 knot, a knot or a, a tie, and so the, the word itself kind of 
lends itself to a notion of being tied up with or bound up with somehow uh, tied up with the sights tied up with the sounds as opposed to just recognizing oh there's a sight there's a sound our minds tend to get tied up with it how does it relate to me and you know the wanting of certain sights or sounds the not wanting of them and so the the encouragement here in this sutta is to get to know the uh, the kind of tied upness that happens in relationship to our sense experience so we've been talking about that over the last weeks and um, last week we explored a teaching called the Honeyball Sutta, or not last week, the week before, we, we explored a teaching called the Honeyball Sutta, which kind of describes how this tied-upness happens. It's a, it's a teaching that goes through our the process with each sense base of how that kind of tied-upness happens. It explores, the, the that teaching explores recognizing well there's the eye in sight and then the mind starts to get involved pretty quickly with knowing the feeling the the pleasant unpleasant or neutral aspect of experience and recognizing the mind recognizing what that sense experience is and then we start to think about what that sense experience is and from that we kind of leap into the thoughts and views and ideas and that's really where the knots start to happen we get kind of tied up in there and the another word perhaps for that that's brought up in the um, Honeyball Sutta is papancha. Papancha, the um, mental proliferation or kind of a sense of believing. Uh, believing, one of the ways to understand papancha is the um, not all, not only that there is this kind of like, you know, we start to think about what we have seen and then we remember something that was related to it in the past and we start to relate to it from that perspective and get all tied up in that way. So there's often a lot of thoughts that come in this not tying, but there's also at a subtle, subtler level um, a simple form of kind of just believing that that sense experience that we're having the sight, the sound, the smell, the taste, the touch, is actually what is out there. It's 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 kind of reifies it. It uh, objectifies it or makes it a thing in our mind, as opposed to understanding that what we are actually experiencing. And it's not to say there's, there's not something out there. I mean, I do believe there are things out there. Um, but what we experience of of our what our own experience is is not what's actually out there our experience is something made in the mind and the the process of papancha is kind of one that believes the equivalency we could say believes the equivalency of what i'm experiencing in the mind and what's in the world and it objectifies what we are experiencing as being a, a kind of the true replication or the thing that's that's there and so that's another way that uh, that we get caught. We get tied into believing. There's this, this kind of, um, it's a delusion, basically, that ties us to believing that what we are experiencing, what our, what our experiencing is, is um, 
completely accurate, let's say. <laughs> so the, um, the Satipatthana Sutta encourages us to get to know this better, get to know the kinds of um, relationships that we have in, in connection to our sense experience. One knows the I and forms and knows the fetter that arises in dependence on both. One knows how an unarisen fetter can arise, how an arisen fetter can be removed, and how a future arising of an unarisen fetter can be prevented. That sounds pretty convoluted sometimes in the way it's phrased. But the... Um, so last time we really talked about that process that I just described in brief from the Honeyball Sutta. It's really an exploration of how fetters arise. You know, there's the I in form, there's the contact, the feeling, the perception, the thinking about, the believing. The, that's kind of how that tie, tying up happens. And so that's exploring that one knows how an unarisen fetter can arise. Now how an arisen fetter can be removed how a future arising of a fetter can be prevented. Um, there's, there's some teachings on those in terms of, you know, what, what we might think about with that is how, how can a, a fetter be removed? We think of what do I need to do to get rid of it? Um, how uh, a, a, the future arising of a fetter can be prevented? We think again, what do I need to do? What do I need to shore up? How do I block this from happening? And so we might think of it as, you know, bringing in antidotes and, um, you know, being very vigilant. And, and those things are useful. And the suttas do talk about that kind of practice, you know, the kind of, you know, when there is ill will arising in the mind, an antidote of metta. And so if you're noticing um, ill will arising and depending on seeing something in particular, sometimes we can connect with metta. So that is a way to explore the removal of these, is to kind of um, bring in a, uh, another perspective, we could say. I mean, and, and that can be useful because the, the, uh, you know, the, the fetter or the reactivity is arising based on a perspective that, we've, that we have that's conditioned. And so kind of reminding ourselves, well, there might be another perspective. Maybe I can approach this from another perspective. That can be useful. And the one of the key ways that is taught in the suttas, one of the key ways to, to the um, removing of, or the another word, the abandoning of, this kind of tied upness or bound upness or the fetter um, and the um, how the future arising would would not happen is with mindfulness being aware of the tied upness being aware of that experience of being tied up now that's not very intuitive you know, at least for me, that idea of being aware of something like anger, which I was really tied up with around a particular situation, I couldn't imagine how being aware of it would have any movement towards freedom. I could only imagine that that would make me more angry. But 
you know, I started exploring what does it mean to just know this is what it's like to be angry. And within a very short time, within a few weeks, I understood not so much the details of how it works, but that it works, that it creates a whole different perspective. So something about the curiosity, you know, the the perspective that we bring with mindfulness. Can I know that this is a happening? This fetter, this belief, this view is a happening. Can I know that? It shifts the relationship in the mind from one of just kind of following that view or that reactivity to kind of reinforcing it through engaging with it to just being aware of it. And that allows something different to happen. One of the big things that allows to happen is for us to recognize much of that, uh, those fetters are painful. We feel the dukkha, we feel the suffering, we feel the stress of the way the mind is working. And with the simple awareness, oh, that's what's happening, our mind begins to understand that it's participating in that creation. It's participating in the creation of that tied upness. And the wisdom begins to grow that helps the mind to let go of those knots, to let go of those, the way we're tied up. It's really quite a phenomenal uh, process, this wise mindfulness that the Buddha points to. It's so powerful, and I'm so grateful to the Buddha for pointing it out. I think this was really the brilliance of the Buddha to recognize that this very simple capacity that we have naturally as human beings, this ability to know what's happening in the present moment as a happening, not as something to fix or change, but to get familiar with, to understand. He really points to that, understand what's happening as a happening. And that understanding will move the mind in the direction of freedom. So mindfulness is really our ally here in exploring this teaching of how an unarisen, how a, 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 how a fetter can be removed and how a future arising of an unarisen fetter can be prevented. Mindfulness is, is really the, the medicine for these, the strongest medicine, I could say. Their antidotes are medicine too. They're definitely useful. But the strongest medicine, the medicine that will really ultimately um, kind of point out the confusion of the mind that wants to engage in that tying up, in that fettering, that confusion that thinks that that tying up is useful somehow, it will begin to uh, untangle the mind from those views and ideas and beliefs. So there's another way in, another teaching that's offered that's uh, connected to the sense bases. It's one of my favorite teachings in the suttas. It, uh, it's so beautiful, it's so simple, and yet it's so profound. And it really speaks to um, this recognition, just knowing what's here in this moment. And that's the Bahia Sutta. Many of you are probably familiar with the Bahia Sutta. I will uh, read a little bit of this to you. 
Bahia was a practitioner who was not a follower of the Buddha, particularly. Um, he was a practitioner in a remote part of India, pretty far away from where the Buddha was, and um, doesn't say what kind of training he had in some of the backstory, but just that he, you know, he did seem to have some kind of capacity for concentration, and you know, he was being well supported as a as an ascetic in the area of India where he was living, and um, he began to wonder if he was fully awakened, and had this uh, kind of image or vision of um, one of his uh, one of his relatives who had passed away, and a relative came to his mind and said, you know. No, you're not enlightened. In fact, you're not even on the path to awakening. Um, so, you know, don't deceive yourself. And um, through this kind of um, kind of psychic event, um, he got the, the sense or the understanding that the Buddha was out there and um, where to go to look for the Buddha. And so he began, he began a journey and traveled for several days or quite a while, it doesn't say how long, you know, traveled quite a while to get to the Buddha. And so when he met the, when he got to where the Buddha was living, the Buddha was out on alms round. And he was like so gung-ho, he's like, well, I got to go find the Buddha right now. And he went to, when they told him where he was going on alms rounds, but they said, you know, he's going on alms round, you probably don't want to disturb him. But he went and he found the Buddha and uh, and asked him, uh, you know, will you please teach me your teachings? Will you let me know your teachings in brief? Um, and the Buddha said, Bahia, I'm on alms round right now. This isn't this isn't a good time. But Bahia was persistent and asked again, and the Buddha again refused. But the third time, the Buddha kind of stopped and gave him a brief teaching. This is the teaching he gave to Bahia. And it is said that after this teaching, Bahia became fully awakened. So that speaks to some extent to the depth of this teaching, but also to the kind of where Bahia was in his practice. This teaching was just like the medicine that opened his mind to a perspective that he hadn't quite seen. So the first part of this teaching, I won't quite, I won't read the whole thing just yet. Bahia, you should train yourself in this way. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the herd, there will be only the herd. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. This is how you should train yourself. So the, the training here that he's suggesting is to notice the senses because these the four things he mentions here, seen, heard, sensed, cognized. Um, seeing, hearing, sensing is said in this case in the commentaries it says the sensing refers to um, touch, smell, and taste. So all the other, the, the other three physical senses. And cognized is the kind of the mental activity, the, the sense base of, of the mind, the knowing in the mind. And so in the scene, there will be only the scene. In the heard, there will be only the heard. In the sensed, only the sensed. In the cognized, only the cognized. 
that's how you should train yourself. Now, in this particular sutta, he doesn't go much in saying how that training should be. So he seems to understand that that will be a something Bahia will understand what that means. Somehow he understands that. For us, um, to me, this, this really points to kind of the, um, the recognizing the difference, as I was pointing to in the Satipatthana Sutta, the, the fetter, you know, the, there's the, the sight, there's the eye in the, the forms and the fetter that arises on both. So knowing the difference between the eye and the sight and the fetter. You know, so the, the, the recognition of one knows the eye informs, that's the scene, that's the scene. And then the fetter is, um, kind of not the scene. The fetter is a mental activity. So there's, there's something we see, and then there's, I like it, I don't like it, I want more of it, I need to have it, I need to get rid of it. So there is that relationship. And that relationship is not in the eye in sight. It is in the mind. So the, the, uh, the teachings to Bahia really, to me, point to the recognition of the difference between the seeing and the relationships that arise in dependence on seeing. The liking, the not liking, the the craving, the wanting, the sense of ownership, all of that. And then in 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 terms of the instructions to Bahia, um, in the cognized is only the cognized. So recognizing, okay, so there's the eye in sight, and oh, there's this other thing that's happening. There's this wanting something to happen. And so the training he's giving to Bahia is pointing to noticing the difference between there's a seeing thing happening and there's something going on in relationship to it in the mind. And we recognize, oh, that's happening in the mind. So the Buddha doesn't say to Bahia anything about, you know, um, um, that being a problem. He's, he's pointing to knowing that as a happening. In the cognized is only the cognized. Liking is happening as a phenomenon happening now. Confusion is happening as a happening that's happening now. This is very resonant with the third foundation of mindfulness, where the um, the Buddha instructs us to uh, just know the presence or absence of greed, aversion, or delusion. The presence or absence of contraction, distraction. He doesn't say to then like do anything about it, but just to know, just that the, the, the awareness in this way, the curiosity in this way, in the scene is only the scene, in the cognized is only the cognized, that in a happening is only a happening, we could say, you know, that that kind of awareness, that kind of curiosity about experience, is a different approach and has the nature, when we find our way to that kind of awareness, it has the nature to help the mind understand how to let go. 
So we don't have to do the letting go. We don't have to do the activity of finding an antidote. When we can um, orient towards experience in that simple way, in the seen is only the seen, and the heard is only the heard, and the sensed is only the sensed, and the cognized is only the cognized. The mind will move in the direction of freedom. The Bahiya Sutta points to this because the second part of the Sutta that the Buddha offers to Bahiya is kind of what's the result of training the mind in that way and finding our way to that simple kind of awareness. To me, the, the Bahiya Sutta, the first part, this is how you should train yourself. And the seen is only the seen, and the heard is only the heard, and the sensed is only the sensed, and the cognized is only the cognized. It's a really gentle and compassionate kind of teaching. It's like, oh yeah, there's there's seeing happening, and there's a reaction happening. Well, that's a, that's a happening too, and that's something that's being cognized. When, that, when the mind can hold it in that way, the Buddha in the next part of the sutta describes what the result of this is. What's the result of this kind of attention? The Buddha says, when for you, there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized. Then Bahia, There is no you in terms of that. When there's no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there's no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So the Buddha points to this training basically leading to freedom. Not that we have to figure out, you know, what is this not self? How do I get rid of this sense of self? It's more the, what he says is, when there will be only the scene in reference to the scene, then there is no you in terms of that. It's like the, 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 the process of the sense of self, you know, if it arises, is just seen as another process. It's just another process. It's not taken to be something that it's not. It's not fettered to. It's not like uh, picked up and believed as, oh, that sense of self is a thing, or that uh, liking or not liking is a um, is something that reflects back on me or mine. So that the 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 teachings point to this kind of very simple awareness being the medicine that will move in the direction of an arisen fetter being removed and a future fetter not arising at all. There's a couple other, let's see, do I want to, I'll stop there and see, just so there's a little more time for comments or questions or reflections. Uh, today. And I've got some more thoughts I can bring in if there's not a lot of comments or questions. So, um, but yeah, just to see where, where you are with what I've shared so far.
So someone was asking if I um, could write, mind reading the poem at the end of the sutta. I don't have it in my notes, but I might have it on the shelf behind me. I'll see. But let me, um, let's just check in with Kate first. Well, this is, um, I, I'm just thinking as, as you're going through this, I always find benefit in, in hearing the suttas and looking at the, you know, the Satipatthana Sutta and the elements of it and all of that. But sometimes I think it all comes back to knowing what is, is happening and knowing what's in the mind as a result of that. And so it's not to, you know, it's not to say that it's like, why do we keep going over this stuff? But when, when we, I try really hard to understand like, oh yeah, the Honeyball Sutta or the, the Bahia Sutta. And then sometimes it's like, well, they're both saying the same thing, you know? And, and like the idea, I guess of, okay, so when I, if I look at this tree outside of my, my building, it, it, there's a benefit in being able to do the thing about just, just the sight and what the mind is doing with it. And I guess my question is it, that might make me every time I practice any aspect of that, it makes it maybe quicker that I notice at a, at a given moment in my life that I notice, Oh, it's this that I'm knowing. And it's this way that I'm responding to it. It's like quickening up that process to have that happen. And the deeper understanding, making it more, making the letting go more available to me. Is that, am I, am I, is, am I formulating that kind of stuff right? Or am I missing something in that? I mean, that's a very mental formulation, obviously. Well, I think, I think what you're describing is what you find useful in your practice. And, you know, so trust that, Mm -hmm. trust that. And, and at times the, you know, it won't occur to us to like bring in those reflections and we're just kind of moving through our practice in a more, um, a less kind of engaged way potentially. But, you know, when that happens, you know, that you're noticing that it's useful, you're noticing that you, you kind of recognize it's to me, that's more of the intention you're connecting with, right? The intention mm-hmm. to, to see more clearly, right. but you know, I think it does all, one thing I'll say, you know, it, it does all come back in very basic ways to this simple, you know, what's happening and what's the relationship to it. Know that there's a difference between those two and get familiar with those. You know, that's, that's the real basics of the, of the mindfulness practice itself. And yet, you know, the Buddha taught for some 40 some years, right? And I think he discovered that, you know, different people need a little more information here or, you know, need to have their faith bolstered here or, you know, so to to have a description, you know, some people mind more scientific, they need to hear the details of how does the, how does the process work? Other people more simple, it's just like, yeah, just know (laughs) this is what's happening. So I think the variety of teachings kind of reflects the variety of people the Buddha came in touch with. So I think when we find a teaching that really resonates you know, the, the teachings of the Buddha are pretty dense. So when we find a teaching that really resonates, if we if we stay with that and work with that, I think it will open us to the understandings. Um, it's like it's like the littlest, tiniest bit of teaching, like just like know what's happening and notice the relationship to it. It can open us to the whole of the Dharma if we just yeah. follow that. 
if we can follow that. And yet there are times when, yeah, wow, I can't just, oh, and the scene is only the heat scene. That's not happening. You know, the mind is completely tied up in those knots. And so sometimes having something to, you know, compassion for myself or bringing some other tools in can really help. So, you know, I think some of some of the variety of teachings, I think, are for that also to, to support when it can't be that simple, when our minds mm-hmm. aren't able to have it be that simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like what I'm saying is I'm not, you know, I'm certainly not averse to learning all this stuff and it's all fascinating and I love it. And there's just this there's just this thing that comes up once sometimes of just like, oh, for Pete's sakes, I just have to keep sitting and noticing this stuff. <laughs> well, so, and there's the difference too, like the way Sayadaw Utejaniya, one of my teachers from Burma, talks about, um, you know, hearing all of the teachings. You know, it's just information. It's information that goes in. It helps us to kind of help the cognitive mind orient to experience from a different perspective. But then we don't necessarily have to hold all those cognitive thoughts in our mind when we practice it's more like they kind of filter in i sometimes use the analogy of rain of dharma rain like the 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 all of those teachings are like rain falling on the land and it just soaks into the ground it kind of bubbles down there and nourishes the plants and it's taken up by the roots and that's all a very natural process you know the the plants aren't going out like holding out their buckets you know they're just like receiving what's there you know that this has fallen and so it's kind of like that that the Mm -hmm. teachings just fall and then when we practice in this simple way at times those teachings are there to be able to be taken up uh, in a new way, or, you know, it's like, uh, we see something in a new way. It's like, oh, that's what, that's what that means. Um, so it, 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 it elucidates it for us, just, but just by being simple. Uh, the, the practice itself, I say so many times, you know, the practice itself is simple. And yeah, we do just kind of have to keep at it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And um, so, hang on just a second. I'll see if I can find this, uh, the poem. I think I know which book it's in. <laughs> so the poem at the end of the Bahia Sutta. Where neither water nor yet earth, nor fire, nor air, gain a foothold. There gleam no stars, no sun sheds light. There shines no moon, yet there no darkness reigns. When a sage, a Brahmin, has come to know this for themselves through their own wisdom, then they are freed from form and formless, freed from pleasure and from pain. So this is the the sutta this is found in is in the Udana. Um, I'm reading a translation by John Ireland. You can see that. Um, and it is in the first chapter, the first book, the tenth sutta in the first book of the Udana. So, Linda. Um, Thank you. So today, during just daily life, um, I specifically had this 
um, kind of administrative business documentation tasks that I just hate and I'm avoiding. And I became aware of the, the sensation and reaction to that and a lot of the suffering around it let go quite substantially. And, and yet I found myself still procrastinating. And then I found myself aware of the procrastinating of it. I mean, it's not that the procrastination went away. It's that um, I was aware that with much less um, um, uh, suffering than there had been before, but I was I was aware of the 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 the, the fact that I was procrastinating and just not not getting into what needed to happen. And, um, and, and so I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, so that's just the way it is, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's what has arisen. So that's what has arisen. that's what has arisen, that experience of procrastinating, which has a resistance to it often, right? It's like not wanting to do that thing. Yes. yes. So, so there's the, there's the resistance there. There's that experience. And so that is what has arisen. Um, there's a little bit of a choice point in terms of, does it keep arising? <laughs> so, right. That's so, exactly so that, it, of course. Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, the simple awareness um, helps the mind to see and feel into that resistance and potentially to let it go, move on, you know, and sometimes, sometimes to see, no, well, actually that resistance is kind of st- staying sticky. So kind of curiosity about the persistence of that, experience um you know that the, the procrastination is a funny one in a way it's a, it's a kind of a funny thing to uh I'm, I'm so interested that your cat behind you seems so fascinated by the dharma talk <laughs> it's like i i'm orienting to see, to Sorry. see oh and she's got her paw on you oh that's so sweet <laughs> she thinks you're procrastinating about petting me <laughs> <laughs> so, um, um, you know, procrastination is a funny one because when we can just become aware of it, you know, it almost sometimes the awareness of procrastination can, in a subtle way, be reinforcing procrastination. Ah. Because, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, all we have to do is just know procrastination. You know, and so there's, it's, it's a, so it's, it's delicate. It's kind of a delicate, um, <laughs> a delicate kind of thing to attend to. So curiosity about if there's any leaning into being aware of it almost as an excuse to not do anything. I mean, we're, we're interested in learning. We're interested in learning about the process of the reactivity of the, of the resistance of the kind of what's there with it. Um, and, you know, at sometimes we can see, you know, I think, as you saw earlier, you know, the kind of all of the thoughts going along around the work and everything, there was some release from it. And a lot of it kind of went away through just simply recognizing it. Oh, right. This is what's going on in the mind. That can happen with procrastination, too. We can recognize that, oh, yeah, I'm actually procrastinating here. That's what's going on. And that can break through it we might end up doing it. There can be other things going on with procrastination though. So not to always assume that, um, you know, sometimes, sometimes the mind is 
like resistant to doing something or holding back from doing something because there's something like it doesn't feel ready. Something's not quite ready to engage with it. And so sometimes there's a little bit of, it feels like procrastination or, you know, it's like, yeah, that thing needs to be done. But there's something that's like, so it's not only not wanting to do it. Sometimes there's something that's like niggling. It's like, does something have to happen first? You know, does something need else need to happen before? And 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 sometimes I'll see that that there's a connection that gets made if I'm willing to just hang out in that place of yeah, the mind is resisting doing that and just being with it, being with the resistance, but also being with what's the niggling stuff going on. Sometimes the mind will produce or point to, oh, that would be useful. You know, that would be useful to bring into the activity when I do do it. You know, some, so, so it's not always that it's, you know, just completely resistance. Sometimes there's some wisdom there that's saying, there's something I need to kind of connect with first. So, you know, so the being with is, is useful, but be careful or to kind of curious about is that awareness of the procrastination kind of leaning in to, oh, all I have to do is be aware of it. I don't have to do that thing, you know, because so, it's, it's kind of delicate there in a way. Absolutely. So, so on point, thank you. And um, thank you for offering the opportunity for investigation further um, rather than just being comfortable in the procrastination. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, I can just be, you know, so, so the, you know, the kind of curiosity about, I mean, curiosity is, is a great support for learning about what's going on. And, you know, we're not looking for the why exactly, but often the why does kind of show up uh, as we are curious about what's going on. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Linda. Maybe you have time for one more. There's one more comment or question. Andre. Um, thanks, yeah. Make this really fast. But I was curious to know, I mean, most of the meditation approaches that I've seen seem to recommend um and I guess, you know, there's meditation in daily life, but kind of allowing all of these things that we want to view and then help us to stop seeing ourself as ourself and all of that. Um, they just, you know, kind of what, what arises like in the daily life practice that you taught and then what my understanding of like the Mahasi type approach, but is it ever helpful um, or have you found in, in different practices or different teachings to kind of like intentionally cycle through, like now I'm going to go through all of the basic lists of dhammas and kind of feel what I feel more systematically and then like maybe stop when I notice something, or is it usually we're talking about these kinds of things with the suttas, but then when we experience them, we're just always kind of waiting for them to come. It's, it's definitely useful to, to kind of pick at times to pick a list potentially or to orient to something in my own practice. I found it helpful if that happens kind of organically. Um, so at one point, um, I'm going to stop and go back for a second. Uh, something that Saito Utejaniya has offered at times is, um, he said, sometimes at the beginning, when we're just learning about a teaching, it can be really useful to kind of pick it apart and kind of look at, you know, what the teaching is saying and how it 
reflects on experience. It's more of a reflective practice in a way there because you are like bringing a teaching into mind and curious about how does that resonate or relate to what I'm experiencing now. It's not that we like turn our attention to something else. It's more like we, we take those teachings and, and kind of look at how they, they connect with what's arising now. Um, but he said that, um, you know, it's kind of like when you learn how to read, you have to learn the letters first. You learn, you know, the C and what that shape is and what the sound that's connected with that shape. And then you learn the A and you, et cetera. And, and he said, and then at some point you have the C, the A and the T and you put it together and you make the word cat. And then you understand that that those shapes mean cat. And then at some point, you don't have to think about it all individually anymore. It naturally arises with the understanding that collection of shapes means the word cat and it happens very organically, but, but it, it's a learning process to get there. And so he does, he does encourage us at times to use that kind of reflection to, um, to explore. Uh, our practice. So, um, so at times it can, it can be useful to pick up a list, to go through them systematically. If that's inspiring for you, you could go through them systematically. But for me, I found it more, um, resonant when it's like at one point in my practice in Burma, Sayadaw was talking about perception quite a bit. And so it's kind of like the perception rain was falling into my mind. And, and it's kind of like that began to orient me to be curious about perception and it, it, it created a several week investigation around perception. Um, and so that was kind of really looking at that particular aggregate, looking at that and, you know, how is this related to perception? Oh my gosh, look at how the perception affected my relationship to that thing. Um, so, so there are times when it's useful. It's more of a reflective practicing because it's bringing in thoughts, but definitely useful. Absolutely. 